Welcome to this week's episode of Beyond the Scalpel podcast. This week we had Eric Z from Allergan Aesthetics. Eric is the general manager of the Canadian operations of Allergan. And we had a conversation about Eric's background, uh, what brought him to this point in his career and what he sees as the future of aesthetics, particularly with regards to Allergan. Enjoy this conversation. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Dr. Yazdani. Hi, Eric. How are you doing? Hey, great to see you in uh, not person, but you know what I mean? Uh, virtual, <laughs> at least. <laughs> well, I can't see you yet. Oh, sorry. Is yeah, your, I see that. Sorry. Yeah, is your video on. on? Ah, there you are. There you go. Yeah, how are you doing? I'm well. Listen, I apologize. Uh, thanks for your flexibility and your patience with me as I tried to find the, the right time. I got pulled into that meeting. So really appreciate your flexibility there. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm just thrilled that you were able to join me. Absolutely. Enjoying it. Um, so Eric, just uh, um, to start, I know we, we said this before, but your name. So I pronounce your name Eric J, but you don't pronounce it Eric J. You... I don't pronounce it Eric J. I know some, some do. Uh, it's Eric Say, like say it like say. Yeah. So what, what's the proper way to say it though? Is that, I mean, obviously the proper way is the way you're saying it. Uh, well, I mean, I think it's it's not an English name, obviously. So I think it's been uh, bastardized when it's come over to, uh, to to North America or outside of China. So I, I have pr- pronounced as J, and so some some families do it that way. Um, others pronounce it say. So I, I don't think there's a necessarily a right way. It's been adapted, uh, you know, over the the decades and centuries. Right. Well, I mean, it's the same with Persian name. I mean, any any really immigrant family or any kind of name of a family that's not American or not Canadian or English will will find that there's some as you say bastardization of their name but it, I, I do find it interesting how names are properly pronounced in your mother language versus how how in English we start to mispronounce it but yeah exactly <laughs> um, and Eric you are the head of uh, the Canadian operations of Allergan but what is that's your right, official right. title uh, general manager General Manager Allergan Aesthetics in Canada. Right. And how does Allergan, how's the hierarchy of Allergan work then? The, the head office is in the United States. Correct. Yeah. So our global office is in the U.S. Um, and then we have uh, two regions, uh, geogra- well, actually more than that, but two higher uh, geographical regions, which are the U.S. and international. So everything outside the U.S. And then within there, there's different regions of which one of them is called the WEC, Western Europe and Canada. And we are part of, or Canada is part of Western Europe and Canada uh, as one of the sub-regions under international. Oh, interesting. See, I, I would have thought Canada would be lumped in with a North American market with the United States, but it's not. It's, it's you're, you, we are put in with Europe. Why, why exactly, is that? Yeah. I mean, it, it's gone through different models. I mean, Allergan through its years has reported or been part of like a U.S. slash Canada, North America type uh, uh, structure. Um, more recently until actually until the VA acquisition, it was part of LATCAN. Uh, so Latin America and Canada. Um, and then uh, then with that V, it's moved into the WEC region or Western Europe and Canada. So uh, it gets bounced around. And listen, Canada's. Uh, one of those countries that kind of falls in between. There's a lot of similarities, obviously, with the U.S., 
Um, there are some similarities with Europe as well. So, you know, often Canada and different organizations have uh, seen it uh, under, under both structures. Um, so yeah, it really depends on the organization and what the, the flavor is at the time and what the thinking is at the time. Both have their, their positives and drawbacks as well. I mean, when you look at the U.S., um, you know, it's obviously a very big country. And so Canada's, you know, one-tenth, if that, uh, sometimes, uh, depending uh, of the size of the market. So sometimes they can, you know, get lost in that shuffle of the big U.S. Uh, market. Um, Europe, uh, there's time zone challenges, but then there's also the differences of, uh, uh, I think there's a similarities in times, well, in different markets, like if you look at pharmaceuticals, they're more payer. Uh, it's, there's a lot more similarities in terms of the payer markets. Um, and as well, it's different countries with different, you know, cultures, languages, etc. So there's a little more recognition of some of the differences as well. So there's a benefit of, of, you know, the region having recognition of that. So, you know, it's uh, depends on what the organization's feeling, what makes sense at the time. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really, it's really interesting. I find it interesting. I mean, Allergan is one of the biggest, if not the biggest uh, company in the aesthetics market. That's Would right, you agree? Right. Yeah. And um, it probably is one of the most influential as well, obviously, worldwide in terms of what we do in aesthetics and how how aesthetic trends are, are put forward. Um, so how you divide um, the markets internally, is that uh, something of reflective of how you view the global markets or um, is it just simply an organization for sales? Uh, I wouldn't say necessarily for sales, but I think it's an organizational discussion of what makes sense for you know a variety of different inputs. And I think under the AVV, I think there was also a thinking of trying to align uh, the regions to the, the AVV structure as well. So Canada is part of the WEC region and the AVV structure. Uh, so I think there was, you know, the, the twinning of that for Allergan as well. Now, um, Allergan was an independent company and it was purchased by AVV over a year ago. Uh, is that correct? Well, I, it would have been a year yeah. and a half ago, I think. It was the intention and the the deal was struck um, exactly over a year ago, um, but it actually only closed in May of this year. So after going through the anti-competition reviews, uh, et cetera, and you know, basically the process to deal closed, um, it became official as of May uh, of this year. So that was only, what, seven months ago, uh, eight months ago? Yeah. yeah right right yeah. so uh, that's it's been a more recent and up until that point you know there's only limited information that can be shared there's the intention they remain as separate companies you have to also maintain that uh, you know the the, the the competitive barriers to make sure that you're not sharing information uh, uh, because you know i've seen it in another company where the deal fell through literally weeks before the close so you know you want to make sure that you're not sharing competitive inter, uh, uh, confidential information because the deals sometimes do uh, fall apart right before they close. Yeah. And Allergan is such a strong company, such a strong uh, internal culture and aesthetics. And like I said, it's, it's, it, it has just influenced aesthetics um, so incredibly uh, well. Uh, was there ever a thought that by selling the company or having uh, it being purchased by a non-aesthetics company, that there would be some change in the way the, the, the company could proceed with how it organizes, organizes itself as well as how it, how it does influence the aesthetic market. Yeah, I mean, well, a couple of things there. So um, I would say, you know, Allergan was purchased by activists. What is that? Uh, three years ago, 2017, I believe, roughly around that time. And 
um, you know, it went under, underwent a bunch of changes at that point. Um, I think actually under the AbbVie acquisition, there's more opportunity to actually see increased focus on aesthetics specifically. So despite uh, AbbVie being a very large company, obviously one of the biggest, um, top 10, and um, it's purchased uh, Allergan Aesthetics or Allergan, and then it's incorporated a lot of the specialty eye care stuff into the AbbVie side, it's carved out aesthetics as a standalone company under AbbVie. So it's an AbbVie company, but it's actually put pure focus uh, on the aesthetic side, which I think is really great. That's actually what attracted me to the organization is that it's not just, you know, rolled in with all the others, uh, which is you know, not a bad thing, but having that increased focus on aesthetics and having that, you know, carve out in its own structure underneath the, uh, underneath the AbbVie umbrella um, allows that more, concentrated effort and focus in aesthetic, which I think has been lacking, to be honest, over the past couple of years. So I think this is an opportunity. But also the benefit as well is uh, on stuff like investment uh, in, in Allergan Aesthetics. Um, I can tell you that uh, AbbVie is very keen on diversifying its portfolio, growing in areas where they see opportunity, of which uh, aesthetics is one of them. So as you well aware better than me, being more new to this uh, this market than than, uh, than me, um, you know Allergan, as you mentioned, was the pioneer in the aesthetic space, right? And you think about Botox, you think about the plastic side, uh, et cetera, um, and that's what's really helped us become the largest aesthetics company. Um, but it's also about where do we go from here? And that's where Abvi is very very keen, very interested in continuing to grow, continuing to be on the forefront, not just in the spaces that we're in currently, but actually in the, the new spaces, you know, where is aesthetics, the aesthetics market going and how do we be on the leading edge of that as well in terms of uh, innovations, products, et cetera. Um, I can say, you know, when they were looking at our, our portfolio, but then even more so in terms of R and D, one of the big things they were asking is what else can we invest in, whether it be, you know, development programs or even other companies that we want to grow our portfolio as well. So a very, very keen interest uh, with Abby to grow the aesthetics business even further. And the nice thing with Abby is that they've got deeper pockets. <laughs> so that'll be nice to be able to leverage that uh, for further, uh, further R&D and further uh, portfolio diversification. Yeah. Are, are we allowed to talk about the, the, the future and the directions? Normally, Eric, I, this is kind of the conversation that we get to later on in the, <laughs> in the interview, but, but it, this is naturally going in that direction. And, and I think it'd be great to ask you about what, what direction you think the R and D uh, is going to take you. I, I've asked some of the other guests we've had on um, and understandably people aren't so forthcoming. Um, now, Allergan is just such a massive company and has had such great influence on the aesthetic market. Um, but I, I wonder what's next for Allergan. Uh, the, obviously, the injectables world is dominated by Allergan, both on the, the neuromodulators, which is what Botox is, and, and, uh, and as well as the filler market with the whole line of Juvederm. Um, I, I, like what's next? I mean, that market yeah, yeah. seems so massive and so saturated. Um, you guys had, had a brilliant product in your cool sculpting and, and that, I think that's your only medical device, is it not? Uh, no, we have several. I mean, we have obviously implants as well, and which are medical devices and we have other, other products, uh, 
um, tissue. Uh, you know, well, I just uh, meant energy devices. Sure. And actually, energy. we are looking at expanding the portfolio in that range. And so one thing I have to be careful about, and this is, may also be, uh, you know, in your other interviews, it may be that um, there was restrictions uh, in terms of what you can talk about as well, because I can't talk about specific products um, because, you know, they haven't been approved in Canada. So that's considered off-label promotion. So I, I've got to be careful about that. But um, directionally, you know, we're looking to expand uh, in our body contouring space. So the, the cool sculpting and evolving that as well. Um, and that we're looking in, in shorter, you know, time frame in terms of the, the portfolio expansion there. Um, but also, uh, you know, globally, we recently acquired a company, Luminera, um, which is in, again, the filler space. So combining, um, you know, HA with calcium. Um, you have to help me with the name here, hydroxyapatite. Uh, yeah, so that's it. I, I, I don't know how to pronounce it properly yet. It's still so new in terms of the acquisition. So still getting my mouth around that one. Um, so that's a combination product that, uh, you know, is, uh, was recently acquired. But again, don't know the time frame for Canada. And I, what I would say in terms of those, like those real, um, you know, next hot areas, those are in the works right now. And again, I can't speak too much about it uh, at this point, but um, definitely that's, uh, those are the areas that we're looking to heavy up in, in terms of how do we develop um, you know, pioneer products in those spaces, not, not just the me too's. Yeah. I mean, the, the body, the body contouring market is definitely one of the fastest growing areas in, in plastic surgery, if not the fastest, um, you guys have really done well with cool sculpting and cool tone. Um, I don't, I'm just not sure what's next in body, uh, body sculpting. Is it, um, the, the RF market, which is radio frequency that, that, it seems to be saturated as well with products that do radio frequency for skin tightening. Um, and I don't think you guys have entered that world, but um, is there much more to be explored in in non-surgical body contouring? Let, let me turn this question around to you. I mean, you're the expert. You see this day in, day out. What, what areas should we be looking at? I'd love to get your perspective on that. Uh, to say, you know, these are the hot areas that if we could find solutions in these areas, or if you know of, uh, of product ideas, uh, you know, areas to explore, uh, would love to hear that as well. I mean, I got a lot of ideas, but it's science fiction for me. I mean, I can come <laughs> up with ideas. <laughs> I can't, I can't tell you how to make it work, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah. It, but it is the body contouring and the whole non-surgical part of aesthetics I, I just find fascinating. I, I, I mean, I've been in this this world for two decades now, and uh, I can tell you, I tell people this all the time. When I uh, started out, um, the mentality was really that people would go into non-surgical treatments uh, as a way of kind of holding off until they were ready for some kind of surgical treatment. And so really the mentality, when I, you know, I remember a decade ago, 15 years ago, the the, the mentality was that there was a progression towards ultimately having surgery, whether it's you do fillers and Botox until you're ready for a facelift or you do uh, something else until you're ready for an abdominoplasty or liposuction. But I think people's mentalities have really changed now. And it's the it, it's not really looked at as a progression. It, the non-surgical options are really looked at as kind of a, a thing unto themselves and a lot of those options have gotten so good that you really have people who just want a non-surgical option because it's a non-surgical option and they're never going to kind of progress. And so 
I, I think that's one of the reasons why that whole the whole non-surgical market has developed and gotten so big is that we we understand that it's not necessarily a progression towards surgery. It's in fact maybe the other way around. It's that people prefer not having surgery and there's good options out there for people. Yeah, exactly. It can be an and, right? Uh, it could be in complement to or a standalone as well, um, which we're seeing. And, and when we look at our, 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 you know, our, our patient segments or our customer segments in terms of the consumers, um, you know, we see, see two categories that primary categories, uh, if I'm taking very broad strokes, you know, there's the positive aging that, uh, you know, that are, are, are thinking about how do they, you know, not combat, but enhance uh, as, they, as they positively age. And then also, I guess more recently, and then, you know, it's not that recent anymore, but the beautification category where the younger uh, generation um, are looking to maybe enhance something and not necessarily, you know, not necessarily address an aging issue so much as just enhance something that they want to feel more confident about. Um, so we really do see two distinct categories there in, in terms of uh, the product offering. Uh, the the young the, that that is a great point that there's been a remarkable shift towards younger people having treatments, and and those those uh, patients really want reversible treatments. I would say that mm. things that are not permanent, uh, and and quite honestly, a lot of the things that younger patients lean towards tend to be kind of trendy or fad like, and um, and I think that's a lot of what the the filler market has has become it's it's a certain type of luck or a certain type of kind of uh outcome somebody wants but not necessarily something permanent yeah exactly i mean knowing that there's a time frame and that uh, or even in cases reversible uh that that you know gives people maybe a little more assurance that uh, that it's a less risk involved with it right yeah yeah and it's interesting to see how that's really uh been paralleled with the rise of social media and aesthetic surgery and right. and how it, you know you wonder which which kind of what's leading which which is the horse leading the cart is it the social media that's kind of leading these trends or is it the trends that are really well suited for social media I I don't know <laughs> I, I have my thoughts I'm not sure they're right I'm newer to the space but uh, I definitely well, tell think me, there's been tell influence. me your thoughts yeah well I I think the influence I mean I I look to certain celebrities that have really driven this. Uh, you know, this uptake. And of course, the Kardashians are often referenced, right, as uh, being the trendsetters. And, you know, what might have been uh, seen as, I don't want to say outlandish, because I don't think it's outlandish, but, you know, maybe not a, 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 a norm in the past has become mainstream, right? And I think, I, I think that that has been, there's been people out there that have led the charge in that space. So uh, I, I think it's been, you know, some some individuals, uh, some high profile individuals, really leading the trends on that. Do you think <clears throat> Do you think those trends will change when the next social media trend comes up? Do you think that social media is that big of an influence on aesthetics that you know the next social media uh, outlet that comes up will be <clears throat> excuse me will be well suited for a different type type of aesthetic trend? Yeah, and I don't know if it's so much the the outlet per se, so much as what are, is a, what's you know in vogue, so to speak. You know, what are you know, the people that all of a sudden become? It's like fashion, right? Who are the ones influencing? And then that might change. Um, something else I learned uh, that I thought was quite interesting as well uh, when I joined Allergan and, and learned more about the aesthetic space 
was the cultural differences as well. Like when you go country to country, there are huge differences in terms of, you know, what, what, you know, the, the, the population's looking for, what the, the, the patient's looking for. Um, and I was given an example where, you know, North America, the trend is, is typically to look, you know, enhancements without looking overdone, quote unquote, right? You know, it's still keeping and maintaining a, a natural perspective. But other, other countries, and Russia's an example, where um, it's actually a symbol of status. If you can get these procedures, so they tend to go on the more noticeable and, you know, they want it to be seen that, you know, they've had, had some uh, work done because it shows that you can afford to. So there's these huge cultural differences as well when you go around the world. So I thought those were quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're touching on topics I love talking about. I think, I think exploring the role of culture and I would even say ethnicity a little bit and <clears throat> how that influences aesthetics and our aesthetic sense is I think that's fascinating and I don't I don't think you can separate it I mean part of that is the culture of what people want but then it's also the expectations of what they want and the expectations of how they want to look um, so for a big company like Allergan uh, again, how do you look at the world and, and how do you kind of divvy up all of the global trends? Because as you say, you, you've got so many different trends that are, that are popular in the world. You have trends in South America, you got trends in Asia and Europe. And how, how yeah. do you kind of view that? Well, I think it's also a recognition that there are those differences. So even when you're, you might be lumped in from a, a regional perspective, I think there's a, a recognition that you know, countries differ and you have to be able to adapt. Uh, I don't think there's a one size fits all that you can apply uh, around the world. Um, or if you do, it's going to be you know, quite limiting and not recognizing those differences. So I think having expertise on the ground, knowledge on the ground is really important to understand and be able to adapt appropriately to what the local, uh, you know, needs are, uh, whether it be from the customers like yourself, whether it be from the patient side or the consumer side. Uh, Etc. And being able to to you know adapt strategies, adapt uh, programs, uh, and to be able to tailor the offerings appropriately to to meet the customer uh, needs, I think is really really critical. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm actually curious about you know trends that you're seeing. I mean, obviously we've had a huge year with COVID and mask wearing and the Zoom face where you're staring at yourself all the time. Have, what what are the trends that you're seeing in practice? I mean, are you seeing uh, an increased desire or, uh, you know, any shifting in terms of the types of treatments people are looking for? Well, I mean, I, I think it almost kind of, what I see is that it, you've kind of split off into the, the trend towards non-surgical and minimally invasive, which is, which is really big. And, and I don't think that's new. I think that's, that's been going on for a while, but that, that has really, um, <clears throat> I think that that's really grown and um, I think, like I said, you have uh, people who really feel that the non-surgical options are much, much more accessible to the average um, client or patient uh, and what they want in their goals than surgery ever was. And so that, that really has kind of become more accessible to people. And I think that's great if, if that's really what people want and that's what their expectations are. Um, I think on the surgical side, um, 
it, it, like the surgeries become the people who go towards surgery tend to go for far more invasive surgeries. It seems like you've kind of gone off into either we're going towards yeah polarization. <laughs> either we're going towards really minimally invasive, um, reversible uh, procedures that uh, that people really now. I hate to say it this way, but. Um, I'll take a step back. You know, again, I, 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 when I, I remember when I started out uh, in this field uh, and I would see patients and we would do consults, even something like Botox, I, I remember those consultations would take so long to, where we'd talk to patients about Botox and what it was and consent about Botox and somebody would really be thinking about it for a long time and then they'd go away and come back and uh, it was really, I, I, it was really taken seriously, and it, as it should. I mean, now it's so accessible, and the average person who comes in is already just so knowledgeable about these options, just worlds ahead of what they used to be. That I'm not, I'm not. Again, I'm not trying to minimize this, but it's almost like people look at this like a like a haircut and color, <laughs> where th- this is it, it's. It's something that's so casual right now that they they really do view it as a reversible thing that they're very knowledgeable about already, and um, they're happy to go to multiple providers. They've got lots of different options out there, um, and uh, and I think there's more opportunity to expand that as well. And that's something you know in Canada we're we're really putting a focus on is two elements. I mean, it's, it's really, you know, make, creating that awareness, um, but also creating the acceptance of this, uh, the destigmatization of aesthetics procedures. You know, it was always hush, hush, you know, go back uh, several decades and, you know, did she, did she, is that what's been done? You know, you saw that with celebrities, but you also heard it in the rumor mills, you know, and it was always this thing that you never wanted to admit. And I, I, I don't agree with that at all, right? I think this is about something about you're giving people confidence. You're letting people live the best versions of themselves. And so what's wrong with that? Uh, I don't think we should be as patients, as companies, as, as, as well, uh, clinicians. Um, should, we be, uh, should we be embarrassed about that? I don't think so. Um, and so that's something I think we, we want to have an impact on. You know, we put, we're actually investing quite significantly on creating awareness and trying to normalize this uh, positively. Because again, we don't think it's something that's bad. We think it's something that, you know, empowering people, uh, empowering patients, um, giving them confidence. We think that's actually a great thing. So uh, it's also something for me that's important is having an impact. And I've seen it firsthand. I researched before joining Allergan, but also seen it um, through training, but also uh, you know, live sessions um, and the impact that it can have. I mean, you, you, you must see this daily in terms of being able to, uh, you know, unveil or so to speak, or see the results after something. And, you know, the emotions that you can see in some patients, it's incredible, the impact. And, you know, there's a lot going on there in terms of, uh, you know, there might be something that they weren't confident about or something that they had a, a self-consciousness about um, that, it's, it's, it's powerful when you see the impact on their lives uh, that you can have, uh, whether it be through you know, surgical procedures, whether it can be through, uh, you know, injectables, whatever. Uh, it, it's having impact on people's lives. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I just think right now um, people are so knowledgeable and so savvy when it comes down to options. Like, like I said, just uh, exponentially more so than 
even a few years ago. And I think that's part of what social media has done. It's really be, made this so commonplace and so make people so aware of what options are out there. And people are so used to seeing it that they do recognize. And I think that there is a backlash towards people who um, who downplay it purposefully, like the, the whole uh, Jennifer Lopez controversy about using olive oil as I think that that's a reflective of people saying yeah you know let's let's be honest here yeah. I mean it's one thing to say you don't want to do it but let, let's be honest uh, yeah. and let's give people kind of honest opinions and really let's not try to um, pull the wool over anybody's eyes and, and I think that's that's right I mean I think it's important for people to be people to be honest about what their expectations are and what they think that they can achieve and what options really um, can help them if they want. Uh, and then it's their decision if they want to go forth with them. Yeah, I agree. It makes a lot of sense. <laughs> but uh, I, I, do, um, I, I do think social media has really influenced, um, obviously, the filler market for sure, but the whole non-surgical market has, has become so incredibly swayed by how accessible social media has made it all. Mm -hmm. And it's actually interesting too. I mean, this is the first category I've been where, uh, you know, the, the physicians are so active in social media. I mean, that's you, to your point, it's, it's where you communicate with the, with your, your potential patients. Right. Um, so, and your existing patients as well. So it's incredible to see the presence, the savviness uh, <laughs> that that's there. Um, versus other other areas uh, within medicine or pharmaceuticals, etc. Yeah, I mean that in some ways a, is a very democratic thing. I think that social media has made uh, physicians and medicine and this whole aesthetics industry more directly um, accessible to people on a one to one. And you know, even I mean, I'm not great on social media, but I I do find that <clears throat> more than ever I can interact with. <clears throat> excuse me, more than ever, I can interact with my patients directly. And, um, you know, whereas physicians are used to, especially specialists, we're not used to interacting directly. You're used to getting a referral or having, uh, you know, the, the gatekeepers to medicine traditionally have been primary care people. And so uh, patients kind of going through some kind of primary care physician to get to a specialist, whereas now it's you're, you're directly interacting with people and answering their questions and and uh, educating them and kind of showing them your work directly. Yeah. It's a different engagement model, like you're saying. I mean, it's uh, in many cases, not all, but it's elective procedures, right? So it's a, it's different versus the medically necessary, which, you know, has that more traditional pathway uh, in terms of getting to, you know, specialists, especially uh, in particular. Um, but that is a different community. It actually more reminds me of even like the U.S. Uh, model, where um, you know they their their businesses as well, and they're also trying to you know in their in their practices bring patients in. Um, so there is a communication that they have to uh, have to you know put forth, uh, and also an engagement. Uh, you know, there's patient satisfaction, et cetera, that has to really be present in the U.S. because it is more of a, a pull model that they're trying to pull to. Um, and they've got more competition down there as well. And that's, I see similarities in this market, right? Yeah. So can I ask you this, this leads to a great, I, I think a great topic of discussion as well. 
Um, can I ask you about regulations and what your thoughts are on how we get regulated on social media and on information about aesthetics? Because traditionally, um, the regulations that surround aesthetics and aesthetic products is similar to other areas of medicine. And for good measure, um, you know, uh, I think, for instance, we don't want people advertising that they preferentially use one type of hypercholesterol medication over another. That's, I think that's a little bit inappropriate. But in aesthetics, it's, it's different because these products, they are different and people do have preferences, legitimate preferences. And there are reasons why somebody prefers to use one product over another. And in some ways, we're, it's, it's, not, it's not clear to me whether it's appropriate to say that and be open about that. So do you, do you think that we should regulate um, how we educate the public about our aesthetic use of products differently? Um, <laughs> what, I, what I will say, that's a tough one. I mean, I got to be careful about what I say on that one. Uh, there's opinion versus uh, reality too, right? And um, We just want know, opinion. We're separated from reality here. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's lay the foundation because I do think that <clears throat> Well, I know we are regulated, uh, you know, as, as a company, as a, you know, an, an industry company, we definitely are subject to the, the regulations of advertising as it relates to both prescription products, which are even more tight uh, regulations, and then medical devices, which has a bit more uh, allowances, but still there's regulations. Um, and that there's good reason for that, too, in terms of ensuring fair balance, ensuring you know, that the appropriate claims are made, et cetera, that you're not misrepresenting because they're still medical procedures, right? So uh, we want to make sure that, that they're, they're being positioned appropriately. So I, I get that and I, I fully understand that. Um, and I think it's appropriate. Um, where we see then, you know, it starts to blur is when, you know, we start to see, to your point, uh, at the, the customer, or the uh, clinician, surgeon level um, and talking about that, um, or should they be subject to the to the same regulations and the way it's been discussed? Um, you know, I'll, I, I'll maybe leave that one for you to answer <laughs> in terms of because it's not my my area. I also I do get though from from like if I look even across competitors etc that are talking it, I want to make sure that it's appropriate, right? Number one that they're they're representing appropriately, that there's data to back it up, um, etc. Um, there's a fair balance uh, where where necessary, etc. So that that you know that's it's it's substantiated, right? And it's a fair uh, communication um, versus opinion that could be you know uh, you know uh, that could be more subjective, etc. That's what you know at least on the industry side. I think it helps make sure that there's appropriate communication channels. Um, are there other models? Yeah, I think there's other models. Like if you look in Canada. Um, on the prescription side, it's quite, quite strict, right? There's very, it can be quite limiting what you can actually say. You can't make a claim, uh, a product claim with uh, a brand name at the same time, right? You have to separate. You can have brand, um, price, and quantity in, in one, and then, you know, anything, you can't even say what it's for necessarily, right? Or not necessarily, you can't say what it's for. So you have to separate that. And, you know, if you're advertising a, a prescription drug, you can talk about the brand, can't say what it's for, you can say what it costs, and you can say, you know, what, what size it is. And that's basically it, which is very limiting. Um, could we expand that? I mean, that takes a whole, uh, you know, drug act change, et cetera, and advertising changes. 
uh, which I think is a long haul. Would there be benefit? I think there's opportunity. I mean, look at the U.S. Um, you know, they have a lot more leeway in terms of what they say, but they also have to balance that. And that's when you get those major ads with all the, you know, potential side effects, which can scare people away. So, you know, is that, is that good either? Um, you know, there's probably a, a nice medium in between, but is there opportunity to talk more about it? I think there is, but of course we have to, uh, you know, stick within the regulations that we're in right now, of course. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. We got to stick to the regulations, but it's, it's just interesting <clears throat> as to kind of, um, how it plays out because it, it is different when you're talking about, um, let's say again, a, a blood pressure medication and, and, you know, um, if you have a physicians who, for instance, I don't think you want physicians out there on social media talking about, I prefer this blood pressure medication or, I mean, it's just far too complicated and there's a lot of factors that play into it. And, um, in aesthetics, however, there are pre distinct preferences, um, like in the filler market, for instance, certain types of fillers, a, a practitioner will have strong preferences about a type of filler for a certain situation. And and in fact, I'd go so far as to say um, patients or customers also have strong preferences. And, and many times you, got, you have people coming in who are very very knowledgeable about these options and they know what their preferences are and they're actually choosing a practitioner based on what that practitioner's preferences are um, and, and I think if we look at those two categories as being the same we're totally underestimating the um, awareness and the savvy of the typical person who is pursuing these options I think we're not giving them enough credit to be able to make decisions and understand the options. That's a little bit of a generalization, but I think it's, I'm just trying to illustrate that I, I have a hard time with regulations that don't, don't differentiate and uh, look to treat everything the same. Yeah. And it's fair. And, and also like you're saying, the modes of communications are changing rapidly, uh, you know, and I don't think our, our regulations have necessarily kept up with the changing times, the different modalities, uh, um, et cetera. So I, I, I think that's a absolutely fair. And, you know, knowing how to change these types of things, it's such a long process. But by the time we change this, I think they'll already be out of date by the time we uh, they're modified. But uh, anyway. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the other I mean, that's a good point. And the other the other part of it is it's such a global market now. I mean, yeah. really, like it, it, it's kind of foolish to think that when when we're advertising to patients or educating our patients, we're sticking to the small geographical area that we're in. I, I mean, right. nothing is limited to that geographical area. I mean, I've you know, anybody who's on social media knows that you've got people from across the world that are following you. And and even patients here, they're not necessarily just following the few people that are in their geographical area. They're, they maybe follow me, and then they follow somebody in Los Angeles and somebody in Brazil and somebody in London. And uh, and all those people have different regulations and that they're yeah. following. And it's it's not uniform. And so it's it seems a little silly to have geographically specific regulations, doesn't it? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely get you. And I mean, we've been dealing with this with uh, television advertising forever, right? Uh, the U.S. advertising coming over to Canada. And uh, and I hope we don't get to the stage, you know, on, on the Internet where you've got geo-blocking. I just don't think that's 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 realistic. I mean, obviously, there's certain countries that do do that. But, uh, you know, in the 
free world, hopefully that we don't see that uh, happening. Um, so I do think we need to, you know, I, we need some people smarter than me to get around the table to try and sort out uh, how to actually solve for this. How do we actually address this issue from a regulations perspective to factor that, you know, there are these differences and that there aren't the borders in terms of, of this communication channels. Um, I think it's absolutely a good point. Yeah. So Eric, tell me a bit about yourself coming into this role. I, I, I thought it was interesting that you, you're in such a prominent role, but you're, you're new to the aesthetics industry. Um, it's a little bit different than what we typically see, which is somebody who's kind of born and bred within a company and rises up and then kind of achieves a, a high leadership position. You are obviously skilled and talented. You've won numerous awards. Um, uh, I think I saw in here that you were in some kind of Hall of Fame. I don't know what it was, but you... <laughs> Canadian Marketing Hall of Fame. <laughs> I mean, that's impressive. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you, thank you. Um, yeah, no, I mean, uh, so yes, I didn't come from or wasn't born and raised in the aesthetic space. Um, I've seen some similarities. I mean, uh, I'll give you a little bit of my backstory. I actually started as a sales representative in the ophthalmology space uh, in Vancouver. I covered all of BC, and this is back in the 90s. And, uh, and actually, Gene Carruthers was, was on my target list as one of my customers I was supposed to visit. Now, her, my products didn't really relate to what she was doing, so it, it, I didn't connect with her that much, but I was very aware. This is in the early days, obviously, when you know, Botox was just being explored. Uh, in in you know in studies uh, for for the cosmetic use, so was keenly aware of that going on. Um, and then you know I, I rose through different uh, organizations and, and commercial roles of sales, marketing, and, and whatnot. Um, and then uh, and, and and spent a lot of time in ophthalmology, which I think has some similarities to the aesthetics market. In in that um, you got medical device, you got uh, you know surgery, you've got um, uh, different aspects that can be business to business as well um, uh, with some of the products that are sellable through uh, through some of the ophthalmologists or optometrists. Um, so I saw some similarities from that perspective. Um, so I've, I've keenly watched them I and used to compete against Allergan in uh, the ophthalmology space. So I was always aware of Allergan, always aware of the aesthetic side. And then um, when I, uh, my last role was at a company called Shire that was dealt with um, neuroscience, gastroenterology, uh, rare disease. Um, and uh, then we were bought by a company called uh, Takeda, a big Japanese company. And um, then I had an opportunity to look for a new opportunity. And uh, I, I sought out Allergan um, because of my interest, knowing the organization and the aesthetic space specifically, because it is interesting to me from a business model perspective of being that business to business to consumer type uh, model. Um, the different, uh, you know, it was different from what I had done, which I thought was really interesting. Um, the communication vehicles that, uh, you know, we play in a lot more like the direct to consumer side, um, the, the fact that we had device uh, you know, space as well as, um, as well as uh, uh, drug as well as uh, others as well in terms of uh, health products. Um, so I thought the diversity, the challenges in the space, the growth in this space, um, the trending in the space and the customer base, quite honestly, it's, it's a really interesting customer base as well. Um, that connection, that closeness that you develop with the, you know, between industry partners and um, clinicians, because you have to have that partnership uh, from an education perspective, but you know, there is that business to business aspect as well. So you have to make sure that that's uh, running smoothly. Um, I found it really fascinating. So that's, that's how I kind of came to Allergan. Yeah. And, and, 
how do you find the transition? Well, uh, I'm not going to lie. When I when I joined Allergan, uh, it was day one of an integration, and it was amidst the pandemic lockdown. So very <laughs> very different uh, experience than what I've uh, experienced in the past. Um, you know, there's still people on the team that I haven't met in person. I've maybe seen on a video call, but you know that's our reality today. Even though our office, we we come in, not everyone comes in, and I haven't been able to get out and meet uh, the team or even meet many customers face to face. I've had uh, Zoom calls as well, but it's very different in terms of you know onboarding and starting with a new company that way. So there's definitely been some challenges, but also been a lot of uh, excitement. We're going through an integration. I mentioned in terms of the benefits I see with that integration, with that increased focus on aesthetics, which I think will be really helpful, um, you know, in terms of the, the R&D investment that uh, we're, we're going to be looking at. We have a number of product launches in the short horizon. So it's been exciting, um, not without its challenges, like I, like I mentioned, but uh, exciting. And uh, I'm not going to lie, I'm, I'm looking forward to the holiday break to, to, to rest a bit too. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, so have you been, uh, you know, I'm sure you have, but do you, have you been welcomed with open arms as somebody who is a little bit of an outsider to the industry? Do, do people kind of welcome you in or do they view, view you as a little bit of, with a little bit of skepticism? Well, to my face, they welcome me nicely. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know exactly what's happening. Uh, I'm, like, I, no, I, I'm joking. But I have to say, it's been actually uh, quite refreshing. It's It's been really, I was worried about that, quite honestly. I know this is a tight-knit community, right? Um, a lot of people have been here for a long time, whether it be, you know, obviously on the, on the surgeon clinician side, but also on the, on the, the industry side. You know, there are many people that have been around for a long time. Um, so uh, I was wondering how I was going to be received, um, but you know I've been really, really welcomed with open arms uh, from what I can see, um, and appreciative of that. So yeah, it's been they've been giving me the benefit of the doubt, and uh, hopefully I'm, I'm making a positive impact. But a lot more to do as well to make sure that you know we continue to do well by customers and by patients. Yeah, um, when we last chatted, we talked a lot about corporate culture and uh, you know when i've when i've chatted with other ceos and other leaders that's that's always such a big part of our discussion and it seems to me as a leader and a corporate leader culture is like a huge part of what you're trying to establish um can you tell me a little bit about that walking into a situation where really you're you're trying to learn both the industry and the company is it hard to have an impact on culture or do you need to have an impact? Is it already a strong culture that's established? Yeah, I, I think we've gone through a lot of changes, Allergan. I mean, being fully transparent over the past two years, you know, I think starting with the acquisition of Allergan by activists several years ago, um, Allergan in Canada has been going through a lot of change, right? And there's been transformation that's been happening, changes of ways of working. Um, so I think, you know, there has been change culturally, uh, operationally, et cetera, um, that's been there. So, you know, me coming in was another change, uh, recognizing that, but I think, you know, I, I recognize that. And I think addressing culture is one of the first things, uh, wanted to make sure not to change the culture, but just to make sure that we're establishing a strong culture, uh, for Allergan aesthetics in Canada and part of AbV as well. Um, you know, we, we briefly mentioned this when we talked uh, last time, but I, I am a big believer. I think culture, uh, I think I, I quoted Peter Drucker about uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? It's, it, it's, 
you can have the best strategies, but if you have a bad culture, you know, long-term, you're not going to win out. If you have a great culture and a mediocre strategy, um, you can do wonders. Like it really does trump uh, and it's really, really important. So that is critically, critically important to establish and really entrench. Um, I have found it more challenging uh, in terms of, of being able to connect with people, uh, meet people like I, I talked about, just because of the remoteness, uh, and the nature of working right now. Um, but, you know, it just it, it's not a major hurdle, but it's definitely put maybe some of the timelines to establish that a bit longer. Um, some additional challenges where you have to uh, work harder to find those ways. Um, but I do think it's, it's critically important. So that's been a big, big part of the focus uh, uh, for these first few months. And, and how do you go about doing that? I mean, I hate to kind of keep harping on it, but uh, I think culture is something that uh, obviously you've got a huge company, but even even somebody who's got a small business struggles with the establishment of a culture of a, a, a positive culture, a culture that's going to drive their employees to want to work hard and be successful and treat their customers with great respect. Um, how do you, how do you, how do you make sure that that is a foundational aspect of the business? Yeah. So I think there's a, a couple elements and different angles to, to address this by um, number one, I think it's setting the direction, uh, understanding where you want to go from a culture and being able to articulate that. And that starts with building, you know, what, what that looks like. And, I, you know, I think there's a top-down approach where we can say, okay, here's a culture and, you know, you know we're going to live this, which I don't think you get great buy-in. Or, you know, you can get some buy-in, but I don't think you're going to get broad buy-in. I think it's also understand, uh, it's important to understand, you know, a bottoms-up approach as well. What's important to people? What do we want to do as an organization and involving people in building that aspiration, you know, where we want to go, what's important to us as an organization as well. What are the things that we think are important in our ways of working and really defining that. So it does not necessarily everyone, if you can get a broad perspective and then synthesize that and build that, I think you get better buy-in in terms of, you know, what that looks or, you know, uh, adoption a longer term. So then being able to clearly define what are, what's important to the organization and to the company uh, to say, here is the important elements in terms of, you know, whether it be collaboration, whether it be, um, you know, openness and honesty, whether it be transparency and, and those different elements and whatever it is, you know, making sure that those are clear and then communicating that and making sure that people understand this is what we aspire to and uh, ensuring that people understand that. And then it's living it. I think that's the, the, the big element as well is walking the talk as well. Uh, and actually not just putting that up and, you know, coming back and revisiting it every whatever months. It's actually embedding that in, uh, in terms of whether it be everyday communications, whether it be in meetings, whether it be in whatever touch point you have is really holding those at the forefront and making sure. Now, listen, you're not going to be perfect all the time in terms of being able to, to, uh, to live those, uh, those those cultural elements every single time, but it's if you know it and you you've all agreed to it, then you can hold people to account and you know call people out if they're not living up to those cultural elements as well. Um, and if you have an open uh, uh, you know culture, then people are okay with addressing that and actually making sure that we're we're reinforcing those behaviors and ways of working that uh, you know as an organization we aspire to. Yeah, I think you guys have done an outstanding job, really. And I think um, one of the things that I've seen that that maybe it helps with Allergan is how much you've focused on education, the whole educational kind of component of aesthetics. 
and um, I think how you guys interact with both the public as well as practitioners and provide educational experiences is I, I can't help but imagine that that has really developed a strong internal culture for you too. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's the value offerings, right? And like, how do we create value in those partnerships, whether it be through education, whether it be through, you know, raising awareness, you know, growing that overall awareness throughout the market. Um, you know, I think hopefully those are elements that you appreciate on the other side that, uh, you know, we see is together working together to grow the overall market. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, do you find Allergan is, um, my understanding is it has a division of Allergan breast and Allergan face. So the, the, the products related to face obviously go into the face market and then the, the, the breast covers the whole breast implant market. Have you, have you seen kind of distinct changes in the breast implant market over the past couple of years, particularly? <laughs> That's a loaded question, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, kind of. I guess so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's been an evolution for sure, um, of course, with some of the, uh, you know, obviously the challenges in the breast market. So, um, you know, certainly we've seen uh, a change in the product types that are being used. Um, you know, our breast category is called our plastics and regenerative medicines. So we have both the, the plastics, which is the, the plastic surgery breast, uh, uh, breast side, but then we also have regenerative medicine with some tissue uh, side and uh, you know, other devices as well. Um, so, you know, fortunately in Canada, that's still, you know, a sizable market for us that uh, we still have presence. Um, obviously, it was challenging times as well. I mean, I don't, we can't sugarcoat it. It was a challenging past couple of years on that side uh, globally uh, with respect to, to the breast side. Um, you know, I think, you know, we have to thank the, the partners uh, for working through this with us and uh, know that it, uh, you know, it hasn't been ideal and there's been trips certainly, but hopefully the seeing the, the support and the, the discussions that we've had um, and uh, trying to, uh, trying to, you know, support the, the industry as well uh, and the clinicians through this uh, challenging time. Yeah. Um. Can we talk a little bit about your own culture, like your own Chinese culture? <laughs> I, I mean, I, that's a pivot. That's a pivot. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I could go on forever, but I, I do want to. I do want to get a chance. I again, I you know, I, I love talking about personal culture and how it influences us. And uh, I know that you're you're a Canadian boy like me, but you're you're from Vancouver. You've got Chinese background. Um. I, how do you think that's kind of influenced you and where where it's kind of led you to where you are today and and I mean you can talk about it in the aesthetic market if you if you want but even in terms of your position and leadership yeah um you know it, it's interesting when I was a kid I mean so just maybe separate my my father uh, was an immigrant from China um, and came over uh, to go to med school in Canada and uh, my mom is, you know, I always get this mixed up uh, in terms of generations. I don't, you know, people have different definitions. First generation is the one that comes over or uh, first generation is the first one born in Canada. How do you define it? Um, I, I thought it was the first generation is the one that's born. Okay. So I would be first generation on my dad's side and third generation on my mom's side. So I say I, I average out to second generation uh, between the two of them. I don't know if that's accurate, but that's the way I define it. Um, and uh, yeah, so my mom, you know, doesn't speak Chinese, is not very familiar with the, you know, the Chinese culture. She's, uh, she's, you know, she it wasn't spoken at home for her, et cetera. So, 
um, you know, didn't speak it at uh, home. And my father speaks Chinese and came over from China. Um, and so, it, you know, it's there, but at the same time, it's not there in terms of my exposure to that. And it's actually, I, I've had very few regrets in life, but one of my deep regrets is that I didn't learn Chinese as a kid. I mean, uh, you know, when I was growing up, I was going to French immersion school since preschool all the way to high school. And, uh, you know, I wanted to fit in with my peers at the time. And, you know, it, it wasn't a, a very diversified uh, group then. So I think having, you know, embracing my culture at that time was, was not my interest. In fact, I did the opposite. I shunned it a bit just because I didn't want to stand out as being different when I was in those, you know, formative years. Um, that being said, I think, you know, definitely had an influence on me when I look at my dad's approach and, uh, you know, the way he, he, uh, you know, came over, um, and his, his work ethic, uh, uh, you know, I, I definitely think that instilled in me as well, uh, watching that at home, uh, despite shunning it publicly, uh, initially, uh, and now trying to learn more about it and, uh, you know, be curious about that. And I think even me coming to terms with accepting my own culture, uh, and embracing it and celebrating that has been something educational about, you know, accepting diversity, you know, we don't have to conform because that's why I used to think when I was young, um, we don't all have to be the same. In fact, I think that's actually not a good thing. I think we actually need to embrace whether it be diversity culture wise, or diversity thinking wise, I think that makes stronger teams. I think that makes more interesting friends. I think that makes more interesting conversations. So, uh, you know, embracing diversity is, is definitely something that I think, uh, again, not just culturally, but from many different aspects, um, is something that I take away from my own experience coming to terms with that because, again, I wasn't always that way initially because uh, I didn't want to stand out. So I think that really helped me as a, a leader as well because, you know, it opened, me, opened up my eyes to that, that, uh, you know, my initial thinking was incorrect. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's interesting how diversity has become such a strength now. And even, uh, you know, when, when, when I was growing up, um, it, it was, it was, so we were just so different. We were always considered so different. And, um, you know, I was a son of immigrants and my parents had come to this country as really uh, religious refugees. And, um, and we, you know, we were always considered so different. I, I grew up really feeling strongly that I was an outsider. And, and now in my position at the university in my practice, it's almost it's funny to me how sometimes I'm viewed as like the norm or the insider and it's <laughs> and it's it's interesting how the past couple decades has seen such a such a acceptance of diversity to the point where you know the the in some ways the the norm is considered diverse yeah and i i i don't think we're fully there yet i think there's a definitely opportunity to continue that path but we've come so far and that is great to see i totally agree um, and, you know, I look at different companies, especially over the past year, as, as you're well aware, in terms of what's happened around the world, um, that it's even heightened uh, even more recently, right? And great to see that companies are putting this as actually, even in this day and age where we think it's the norm, putting even more emphasis on ensuring that there's that diversity and inclusion, which is great to see. Do you guys do that in Allergan? Yeah, I mean, it's become a big focus, not just at Allergan, but at, at, at AbbVie as well you know, putting diversity officers at the very high level to ensure that we're, we're culturally, uh, you know, making sure that this is a priority, 
putting in programs to make sure that we're, you know, including in our hiring practices, in our operating practices, making sure that this is a top of mind, ensuring that, you know, um, the very narrow thinking is not acceptable uh, in the organization. So a lot of different initiatives that are being uh, put in place. And, and again, not that they're brand new, it's enhancements uh, because it has been the focus, but even putting more emphasis on it as an organization, it's a global priority actually, uh, right from our CEO. Uh, is that right? So, and what about encouraging uh, female participation? Because I mean, the aesthetics industry is very strongly dominated for for women in terms of they are by far the majority of the clients. Yeah. Um, so how, how are you looking at um, encouraging more female leadership? Yeah, I mean, in fact, uh, from our employee base in Allergan Canada, or Allergan Aesthetics Canada, a majority are female. So it's actually maybe disproportionate on that side uh, towards the female side, maybe because of the space, like you're saying. So um, I think we've got a well-diversified team from a, a male-female ratio. In fact, it's a disproportionate to, uh, to the female side. Yeah. Do you think that's, that whole ex- exploration of diversity is something that um, is a trend in aesthetics? I mean, I, I hope so. I say this kind of hoping the answer is yes, and I personally have an interest in it, but looking at... Um, aesthetic standards as it relates to different diverse populations of people. Um, when you say it's a trend, I mean, I, I hope it's not a trend. I hope it's permanent. You know what I mean? I, I see an increase on it and I hope that it's not just a trend that will fade away, uh, so to speak, but actually is here to stay. Um, and and I, I have seen an increase and even quite honestly in our own organization, seeing increased diversity in, in our, our models and our advertising, um, and I think that only strengthens us, strengthens us. Um, and I, I agree. I think it's a positive that I hope doesn't, uh, you know, just blip up and blip down. But I, I do think it's here to stay for, for the longer term. Yeah. Is that also related to how you view the, the global market? Um, no, I don't. I don't think it's um, just in the global markets either. I think it's even because, you know, we have... Um, uh, you know, specific campaigns can be modified to to the local or created locally. Um, and I think it's actually saying even within local markets, it's not just taking, you know, global assets and, and, and you know, plug and play. It's actually ensuring that it's relevant. And I think that's actually the point is that it is relevant for local markets as well. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. I mean, I, th- I think... I think the more we can focus on that, especially in the aesthetics world where we're talking about um, we're talking about the different aesthetic goals and expectations of people of diverse backgrounds, it, it's just so important to explore that and, mm-hmm. and not just simply from a marketing perspective, but even some, but even really looking at what it is that different people are looking to achieve and how different options may be better suited for some people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We actually have a program just to talk about the female diversification um, where, uh, you know, there's the, the flame program that we have, which is female leaders in aesthetics medicine. Um, so it actually is taking some global female thought leaders and ensuring, you know, that, uh, that we're tapping into that uh, and, and helping, um, you know, tap into their expertise, but giving them platforms as well, uh, where they can uh, be thought leaders around the world, which they are, we're just, you know, leveraging that uh, from the female perspective that, you know, giving that uh, stronger voice and hopefully amplifying that because, uh, you know, to your point about them, uh, the, the female being disproportionate, I don't want to say disproportionate, but heavily presence, obviously, in the space, uh, being important that they have that voice as well. 
Yeah. Um, so, so maybe can you talk a little bit more about innovation? So uh, how are you guys exploring your R&D and what your next kind of set of innovative um, technologies are going to be? Um, so we have a whole R&D team uh, globally um, that has, you know, a number of assets and pro development programs that they're looking at. Um, I, I think you're asking what more specifically. I don't know if I can give you as much detail as you're looking for in terms of what areas we're really diving deep I'm trying on. to nail you down, um, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, uh, like I said, we're actually expanding it as well. And, and, you know, from a process perspective, it's the internal development programs, but it's also on, um, uh, you know, even on the M&A uh, merger and acquisition perspective, are there, you know, are there innovations that are further along that we can even, uh, you know, bring in that might be, you know, further along the pathway that can come to market even sooner? So that's the two aspects, internal development and then business development where you can actually bolster with, uh, you know, because it takes a heck of a long time to develop products, right? And especially innovative products in untested areas and, and innovative areas. So if you can also partner with other ones that are, you know, developing, um, you know, innovation outside and bringing it in, that's also can accelerate uh, that, that innovation. And, and that was the case with cool sculpting, right? Yes, exactly. That it's was a merger. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think, I, I think that these are really great <laughs> questions that, that we we've had a chance to chat about. Um, I was going to ask you a little bit about some of some personal questions for you as we start to kind of wind down. I, I've got some hot takes for you. I know um, you've got passion in woodworking, right? Yes. So tell me a little bit about that. How does that how does that play into the whole leadership in an aesthetics world? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to make the link to to leadership in the aesthetics world, but um, yeah, I, what what I would say is I, I love to create. Um, and I love to take something that in its raw form and transform it into something, whether it be practical, beautiful, whatever it might be that uh, I'm working on. Um, so to, to see that transformation, I don't know if you, you know, see parallels to your work you do and taking something in a different state and then transforming it as well. But I get great satisfaction out of that. So, um, and I just, taking something that can seem, uh, you know, I, it sounds, I don't know how to phrase this. I love raw wood. Like when you're looking at it, the grain and this, like it just, you know, you see possibilities there and just the uniqueness of this natural um, uh, product. I, I just think, I don't know, I am fascinated by it and all these different types. And there's so many different types of wood locally, but also, you know, uh, from around the world and the differences in the, the colors or the, the shapes and the patterns. It's just, uh, it really does marvel me in, in terms of, of, of the diversity and the beauty that you can find within it. And then you can take that and transform it and even enhance it even more. It's just, uh, I don't know, it's something that uh, I, I love. And, and also just for me, it's also something about, you know, focusing on something different as well. When you can take, you know, you have these great hobbies that you can, you know, remove yourself and recharge and, and put, throw yourself into something else for a bit. It gives me more energy when I get back to work uh, or doing something different. So it's my, also my escape, but not escape because I don't think it's, I'm, I'm running away from something, but it's helping me be even better, uh, you know, in terms of, of, of at work and, and uh, leading. Yeah. What's your daily routine, Eric? Um, so I'm an early riser. I, uh, I, I've become one when I was, you know, earlier in my, my life, I tended to be a night owl, but I've definitely shifted over to 
being an early riser. Um, every other day, I like to do some form of exercise, whether it be running or um, during uh, um, between jobs. I, I joined my wife's boot camp, so I crashed. I was the, the only guy for quite a while until COVID. Now I've seen a few husbands come in on the COVID side. Uh, so uh, yeah, we do uh, either workout or go for a run, um, and then uh, have breakfast, and then can then get to work. Um, and so uh, spend the day at work and. And then uh, I, I try and be home for dinner with the family. That's important to me to spend the time with the family, uh, with uh, at least at a meal. Um, and then typically there's a lot of uh, emails to catch up on <laughs> after work. And then uh, and then it's to bed fairly early. I've, I've learned myself that, you know, if I spin for an hour at night because I'm tired, I can usually, you know, get it done in 10 minutes in the morning. So I'd rather go to bed, wake up early and, and, and get it done rather than uh, try and, you know, spin on it uh, late in the evening well that's great and what's your favorite allergan product are you allowed to say um yeah well I'm, i haven't explored them that much i haven't gone in to see anyone yet so so far it's been a skin medica product i've been uh, working on the uh oh, <laughs> TNS are, are, you, are you using them <laughs> yeah that's what i've uh, started to use and uh but i haven't had any injections yet i say yet I, i'm still figuring out how to get that done uh, so with time, good. Who who would you consider to be a one of the biggest influences in your life professionally? Um, professionally, I would actually say one of my old bosses, um, and, and she taught me so much about culture. I worked uh, with her for probably eight years, and um, yeah, I was very fortunate to you know to start in my career under her leadership, and I saw that power of culture. Um, so she really did teach me. Uh, and knowingly, I don't think she, she was conscious about it, but it was an unknowingly teaching me uh, initially about that sense that you create with a team, um, you know, that sense of belonging, that sense of wanting to do more uh, for the organization because you felt that affinity towards it. So that was, uh, had a huge influence on me throughout my career. Where do you think Allergan Canada will be in five years? Um, I think we're going to be even bigger uh, in a positive way, uh, not from a bureaucratic way uh, in that sense and a uh, big machine. Uh, but I think we're going to be seen as, you know, we, we've been the leader in this space, uh, obviously, for, for decades. Um, and I, I think we're only going to entrench that position as we bring up more innovations, not only in products, but also hopefully in the ways that we're doing things and the ways that we're partnering as well. So really want to make sure that, you know, people want to do business with us um, and uh, be partners with us. Um, one thing I learned when coming in is that there's a strong affinity. People have, you know, they grew, you know, some people have told me they've grown up with Allergan in their careers, you know, in that partnership. And, and they really appreciated that. And I hope we can even entrench that further. That people feel that they can continue to grow or if they're newer, uh, you know, in, in their career or newer to aesthetics that they feel like, hey, Allergan's the company we want to do business with because of, you know, all the things that we do. Yeah. Um, okay, last question. Uh, I've asked everybody this. Um, what is the global issue that's most important to you personally? Uh, quite honestly, it's, it's COVID. And I know that sounds a bit, uh, um, you know, probably overdone and overplayed, but I think it's going to have a dramatic impact on the ways we do business. Um, and I, I see it even right now in terms of, you know, how do we engage our customers in a meaningful way, you know, when we can't see them sometimes. And I don't think it's going to change. Like even when we have vaccines, I think, you know, we're definitely going to see each other more, but I think it's going to permanently change the way we interact. So it's 
how we interact to make sure that we're providing value and, and having that good partnership um, in different ways, uh, whether, you know, it used to be a lot of face-to-face, maybe it's, well, I definitely still think there's going to be face-to-face, but I think it's going to evolve as way that we have to think more creatively in terms of the ways we connect with our, with our customers. Great. Eric, it was a pleasure. I thank you so much. I think uh, Allergan Canada is really lucky to have you uh, at the helm. Um, maybe when all of this craziness ends and we've all got uh, immunity, we can do this live and in person. would love that. Listen, really enjoyed the conversation, Dr. Yazdani. Appreciate it. And uh, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you so much, Eric. We'll talk to all you right. soon. Take care. Bye. Bye.